0: You're listening to Oh No Lick Class.
1: Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes.
0: Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Ono oh lit class the podcast that's thankful it didn't have to try to find a thanksgiving themed book this year i'm megan
1: i'm paddington 2 what i'm the best movie of the year
0: paddington 2 came out last year
1: oh shit <laughs> <laughs> i'm the best movie of 2017 at me awesome i'm rj
0: so this episode is a little different than what we would kind of wanted to. We had a guest, but they had an emergency, and so we have decided to push the emergency Shakespeare button that we keep behind glass. Because that's, you know, that's what we do in an emergency. We turn to Shakespeare. For warmth, for comfort, for solace, for lots and lots of sex jokes. Because actually, we've kind of only done Shakespeare's bummer plays... So far, you know, Macbeth, everyone dies, Hamlet, everyone dies, Titus Andronicus, everyone dies, and some people are pies.
1: Someone had a hand in their mouth. That was pretty cool. (laughs) What (laughs) What do you mean? That was pretty cool. Yeah, they shoved their fist in their mouth.
0: No, it was that they needed to carry, um, oh God, now you're making me remember. It was like Titus's hand or somebody's hand. Yeah.
1: and That's pretty funny like a tarantino flick all these well
0: that one that one especially all if you don't want to hear the fucking insanity of the titus andronicus episode that well that's like episode 25 or 24 or something it's it's fucking they're weird they're all
1: tarantino flicks i guess yeah everyone dies well like reservoir dogs
0: this is not a tarantino flick because we're changing things up and we're gonna talk about one of big Willie's most famous slash popular comedies because it's nice sometimes, you know, to just have a good time without the entire principal cast dying horribly.
1: So like a Seth Rogen comedy, a Jim Carrey comedy, one of those No. British uh, can't think of the name in any of the uh, like Hot Fuzz comedy. Nope.
0: It's more like one of those cheesy romantic comedies where everybody is married at the end. It's like three
1: weddings and a funeral.
0: <laughs> actually, this play is three weddings and no funeral. That's usually how you differentiate. It's a Shakespeare tragedy. Everyone's dead at the end. It's a Shakespeare comedy. Everyone's married at the end. It's what you, you only have it one way or the other.
1: Death can be funny.
0: I'm not saying death can't be funny. I I'm just saying that Shakespeare doesn't have death in his comedies. Usually I'm saying this and someone's going to be like, well, actually, but off the top of my head. And anyway,
1: What a lame <laughs> What a basic billy
0: <laughs> i mean he was but uh we're talking about a midsummer night's dream well, he thought he
1: was cool with that earring of his he
0: did we've are we just gonna recycle every william shakespeare joke that we've made
1: bald billy bald, bald billy. balding
0: billy he had some he still had some hair going on just not not on the top bits that's the so important just, bit <laughs> that's the bit that matters yeah
1: that's a differentiator from Having hair and being George Costanza. You ever think maybe he was the George of his group, sleeping oh, under the desk man. at work? Talk people know that's why the rich people didn't respect him and they want to be like, Billy <laughs> didn't do any of this work. It was the other guys. It was like Christopher and all the cool guys. Jerry, I'm going to
0: steal everything from Ovid's Metamorphosis. I did a new version of Amleth, Jerry. It's very bad.
1: He probably talked like that. He too. did. He probably talked exactly like that. I thought like like, he was a shitty actor. It's a very
0: bad George Costanza impression.
1: Larry David was also bald. I think this is a trio of people here.
0: Yeah, at the stands of the character, is just Larry David the person.
1: I think Big Billy was uh, it was an anachronistic,
0: born at the wrong time. Should have been in Seinfeld.
1: Could should have been. Could have been. Could've All right, been.
0: With, with that hot take.
1: Don't at me.
0: Don't at him because he hasn't used his Twitter <laughs> in like two months. Oh,
1: DMs only.
0: Gross. So, did you have to read *Midsummer Night's Dream* in school?
1: No idea. You've got
0: no clue. All right, awesome. Maybe. <laughs> this was actually the first Shakespeare play I ever read slash was taught in ninth grade, like before we even got to Romeo and Juliet. And so while I'll definitely say usually, and I'm pretty sure in our first episode that Macbeth is my favorite Shakespeare play, it's also kind of the cool kid answer because that, that's the one that has the blood and the murder and the C-section-based plot devices. But there will always be a special place in my heart for Midsummer Night's Dream, and just a deep and terrible love for what's essentially a play about a bunch of really horny idiots being manipulated by equally horny, slightly less idiotic, but still largely incompetent fairies.
1: It's a question for you. Yeah. Since you have hot takes about this play.
0: I feel like they're pretty mild takes, but go for it.
1: How do you interpret the title? Is it a dream about a Midsummer Night, or does it actually take place during that Midsummer Night?
0: Well, it depends on what you would define as midsummer, because when uh, Theseus... Well, okay, we haven't even introduced who Theseus is, but... We'll get back to this question later. Okay, fine. We'll answer this question
1: later. Megan has no hot take. It's she not really wants, a... Well, it's not a hot she take. She wants an educated take.
0: Well, because the characters specifically say that the uh, other characters were observing the rites of May. So it's in May, which really isn't midsummer.
1: Oh, there um... was global warming. And <laughs> global climate change at the time, no, for real. That's why they keep for going on about the weather. Like it was like a really weird winter.
0: It was actually. They do mention the weather a bunch. Okay, so we're 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 talking. He, he was about the outgore of his
1: time, <laughs> without hair.
0: He knew we're talking about stuff that we haven't explained yet. So let's maybe start with some background context.
1: William Shakespeare, Big Billy,
0: Big Billy. We've talked Big about Willie. him a bunch. Big Big Billy Willie. If you want his whole full bio, you should check out episode seventeen, uh, the Big Willie Conspiracy, and then also just listen to any of other shakespeare episodes
1: anyway big mouth billy
0: big mouth billy bass i think you use that one already but go ahead
1: i've got to use them all just to give some dates uh so he was born april 26 1564 and he died april 23rd 1616 we think yeah around there thereabouts anyway a midsummer night's dream is thought to have been written yeah 1595 1596 so when big billy was around 30, 31. This would put it in the first third of Big Willie's writing career, right around the same time with Romeo and Juliet, Much Ado About Nothing, All the Richards, as well as anti-Semitism, also titled Merchant of Venice.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: To give a little bit of background on what was kind of happening at the time, as a lot of Shakespeare's stuff pulls from current events because he's
0: lazy and steals everything as we've talked about and we'll continue to talk about in this episode
1: so a midsummer night's dream actually pulls from one real life affair in particular so in 1594 the same year or maybe the year before this uh was written the then king of scotland later the king of scotland ireland and england James the Sixth and then later James the First when he became the English king. The well, one
0: the one that he wrote Macbeth for to be like, Hey, don't you like this? And he went, No, I didn't.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so maybe makes sense. He wrote about the guy before. The king welcomed his son, Prince Harry, into the world. A new prince, a huge shindig, was thrown. Yay. The following information comes from a report on the baptism. Now, this report, mind you, is more of a political press release than, like, a historical report. It was kind of written at the time by, like, the king's court.
0: So it's just old-timey propaganda?
1: More or less. Now, first of all, everyone who was anyone, of course, was invited. The report apologized that the following, while certainly should have been there, were not for an assortment of reasons. Hydras, elephants, griffins, crocodiles, camels, dragons, and, of course, the unicorn. It is hard to schedule a unicorn for a baptism. Trust me. I'm
0: sorry, wait. So it it opens with an apology that. Oh, well, it doesn't, of the, it this, does, this it doesn't menag- open with an apology. Oh, okay, but, but it, it has this. It apologizes that this menagerie was not present.
1: Correct, that this event
0: had no crocodiles.
1: Had none of those. N- no crocodiles, <laughs> camels, dragons, or unicorns, even though such an event of that magnitude probably should. And guests should be expecting that. And guests should probably get it they didn't get it. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I bet they all showed up and they are like, what the fuck? All I see is a baby. Where are the hydras?
1: These were not the only things that kind of got left out that the king really didn't want. King James specifically asked for a lion to lead a chariot into the festivities during dinner. That seems like a
0: terrible idea. So while everyone's
1: sitting there enjoying dinner, he wanted a chariot led by a lion to come through the great hall. Apparently he the lion is like the king of the jungle, right? The king of all beasts. Yeah. So Vir- well virile as fuck. There. He gave very specific instructions on how the lion should be picked up and dropped off from its stable because apparently people were just keeping lions somewhere in Scotland.
0: Actually, that was a that was a thing at the time. That was a am a fancy rich person" thing. Is that you would have like tamed, like it's just tamed lion that I guess would have been brought to you. From Africa or whatever. Yeah, people would like trot it out and just be like, look at my lion. And then presumably someone would get maimed.
1: But sadly, his underlings pulled the whole plug on this idea. I'm going to read from the report and I quote, <laughs> This chariot should have been drawn in by a lion. But because his presence might have brought some fear to the nearest or that the sights of the lights and the torches might have commoved his tameness, it was thought that the more... Should supply that room. They were planning on having chariots led in by lions, and instead thought the better of it and had a more, <coughs> a black guy, <coughs> drag we, we've ex- it in we've instead.
0: <laughs> so yeah, they had slaves
1: do it well,
0: instead. Yeah, they both came from Africa. One's as good as the other.
1: So why go through all this effort? Because the king. Duh. So in short, this was one rocking party in Scotland. Quite the day to be alive. Now this brings us to this week's Partying with RJ.
0: <laughs> I mean, you really haven't even yet gotten to what the point of this is yet, or how this relates to Shakespeare. No,
1: we'll come back. <laughs> but sure. I need to take an aside here, talk about partying. Uh, of course you do. Now, all you cool cats out there, I put cars. All you <laughs> cool cars out there. <laughs> all you cool cats out there know I am Mr. A1 Party Master. If you want a party, I'm just a phone call away. Sweet 16, got it. Super Bowl party? Easy, bro. I don't think you should be anywhere near a sweet 16. A freaky bachelorette party? I can plan it and star in it. Meow. Um. But here's the lowdown. (laughs) You go
0: to sleep at like 9 p.m. every night.
1: (laughs) If I was a full-time party planner, it'd be different. But here's the lowdown on baptism parties or anything similar like Briss's. No. Hell, I'd say any party for a kid younger than three is just a waste. Look. I know. Those parties really aren't for the kid. It's for the parents.
0: Exactly. as I was just about to say. The, well, the, <laughs> the, the fucking baby is not expected to appreciate the party. Well,
1: fuck that noise. Toughen up. I know mom ain't a softie. She just pushed a baby out of her vagina. And daddy needs to suck it up. Not everything needs to be about you. Tell everyone the kid is turning one, or whatever, and let them know they can send the checks to whatever address. Much appreciated. You don't need to thank them with a slice of store-bought cake. And it's not like someone watching a fourth-rate clown or watching kids in a bounce house is going to make anyone's afternoon worth it. Save those shekels for things that matter, like Billy's first Easy-Bake Oven or Sally's first pair of Jordans when she starts up elementary school and got to show the kids how hard she balls.
0: Sally balls so hard.
1: This has been a party with RJ Riff. Oomps, 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 oomps. Oomps. Anyway. <laughs> Back to s- mid-summering it. <laughs>
0: Back to the, those sexy midsummer nights. Also
1: well, so apparently, as Megan will get into, apparently this whole play is about partying and crazy shit. So I guess it makes sense enough. There's lions and asses and people. And... There,
0: there are, but so wait, so did he write the play for the, the to celebrate this?
1: No, because apparently, from my understanding, the very first act of this play, he mentions like lions and stuff. And people are like, this is what he's writing about.
0: No, he doesn't mention lions
1: in the first act of the play. I think you're wrong. what um, my research says. I mean, He's crazy animals and party guests. And well, there's, and that. there's
0: lo- Not in the first act. There's a lion. Oh, well, there's kind of a lion. There, there's all of this shit is is gonna be uh, later on. Like, well, I guess I'm thinking of the first scene, first act. I guess has the people talking about the lion. There's never an actual real lion. Snug Yes Snug the joiner That's okay I was thinking of like the first scene Snug is not a lion He's a dude But we'll get to all that He's He's playing the lion In the We can wait We'll explain it in the play Alright so it's more that you That these These were references Yes Okay
1: Oh, well, maybe you know Having fun At the expense of the rich people As he wants to do Indeed And one of his favorite guys Robin Bethmore <laughs> And it was like in the news, so look at these rich people throwing crazy parties. Then he writes about a crazy party. So I was back to midsummer in it.
0: okay, well, midsummer it.
1: <laughs> so the first performance known with certainty occurred at court by sixteen o four based on notes found inside the publications of the first and second quarto of the play. Interestingly, though, the first known piece of criticism of the play did not come for more than half of a century later in the form of a diary entry. Wow. As we've discussed in earlier not uh, Billy-Willie episodes.
0: The earlier Billy-Willie episodes.
1: In earlier big Billy-Willie episodes. Mm-hmm. Diary entries in which people talk about what they saw at the theater is how we've reconstructed a lot about how these plays were performed. The diary of note here belongs to one Samuel Pepys. <laughs> Pepe, was it
0: or uh, Pepys or Peepys? Yeah. P-E-P-Y-S. Pepys? <laughs>
1: Pepys or Pepis who saw Midsummer Night's Dream performed in 1662 wrote that the play is quote the most insipid ridiculous play that I ever saw in my life
0: wow way to be a buzzkill Pepis
1: however he does add that he liked the dancing as well as the quote handsome women he saw quote <laughs> which was all my pleasure
0: was this uh still when like the casts were always men Entirely men?
1: I believe so. All right. (laughs) So in short, a rotten review. Two out of four, I'm sure. (laughs) It apparently just wasn't a favorite at the time. In fact, other than during some early runs, A Midsummer Night's Dream was not performed in its entirety again until the 1840s. So for almost two full centuries, the play languished in partial performances.
0: That's insane. Just when I think about how this is... Probably, like I said, like one of his most popular comedies and there's been so much work done on it and it's been redone so many different ways and so many different styles and it's really just seems so suited for the stage and to be a fun stage play.
1: So that's strange to hear that it just really didn't. "Eh." Maybe it didn't strike the chord at the time and we're going to talk about maybe other reasons it did not take off. While it was still being performed, there were a few notable performances. One of the more notorious performances happened in 1631 in Buckdale, Huntingshire. The issue with that performance was that it took place on a Sunday. Why is that an issue?
0: Because that's the Lord's Day.
1: Well, it wasn't an NFL Sunday, as <laughs> CBS, America's Most Watched Network, had not been created yet.
0: What? Really? It nope. had Not yet? Not
1: yet. It wasn't ah. a football Sunday. Not NFL Sunday quite yet. But... As Megan said, Sunday is the Sabbath. And well, you don't break that without consequences. The fuzz descended upon the performance and caught the actor playing Bottom and put him in the stocks while he was still wearing the ass's head.
0: Oh, that's, that's rough.
1: He remained in the stocks for 12 hours.
0: That sucks. Why do you think they did that? Like, you think they would have known, like, if we're putting on a play on Sunday, like, we could probably get in, like, trouble. (laughs) Just seems like poor planning on their part.
1: They're crazy people, rebels, artists. They're like the Banksy of their times.
0: (laughs) Being (laughs) in the stocks with the the donkey's head on. That's social commentary right there. It
1: is. (laughs) Now, I do have to mention that there may be another reason Midsummer Night wasn't performed in its entirety before the 1840s. And that's because of the Puritan, wow, (laughs) Interregnum. Interregnum?
0: I can't even see where. Interregnum? The Puritan Interregnum. Wow. God, why don't we do this beforehand? You could have looked this up.
1: The Puritan Interregnum.
0: Interregnum.
1: Look, it was the time of Puritans. In short, (laughs) from about 1642 to 1660, the English theater was closed due to Puritanical overreach. Ugh. Don't at me. So what was special about 1642? Well, that is when the English Civil War began and Puritans came to power in rejection of the monopoly of the Church of England. The English Civil War lasted over a decade. Some key highlights. King Charles I was beheaded. His son, Charles II, was sent off into exile before returning in 1660 and reclaiming his father's throne. Oliver Cromwell, you may have heard the name, was the big shot in power during the time between kings. And really, the entire episode demonstrated why republics at the time may not have been more desirable than living under a monarchy. Maybe. Maybe. As alluded to, the Puritans were not so big into theater, specifically drama. The
0: Puritans were not so big into anything that wasn't God.
1: Which is why they shut that whole thing down. They also sent actors away claiming that they were rogues and not welcomed in England anymore.
0: (laughs) What if we could do that? What if like, the next time Adam Sandler puts out like a shitty movie, we're just like, you're a rogue and you're not welcome here anymore?
1: So despite what the Puritans wanted or thought, people still needed entertainment, of course. Of course. So that's actually where Midsummer comes in. So during this time, it was performed piecemeal in form of drolls. Basically short comedy sketches with jugglers, clowns, acrobats, and all sorts of circus-like fun. But it wasn't drama, so it was allowed to pass because they kind of shortened it into small little sketches. Interesting.
0: Because I wonder if that's like tied into the entomology... Wait, fuck. Which one is bugs and which one is words? Entomology is words, right? Etymology is bugs? No idea. I think it's entomology. The entomology of the word, like, droll to to mean, like, something that's, you know, just sort of like, oh, a good time. It's rather droll. It's rather amusing.
1: I would assume so. Either way, the way that I kind of imagined this as I was reading about them is if you imagine, if you've been privileged enough to ever see Cirque du Soleil (laughs) and know between the different, like, acts of Cirque. They got like the clowns or whatever else that do the little show. They'd be like doing the little show. And so mm, they got by. And that's how people got to know Midsummer Night's Dream. And so it wasn't the whole drama part of it. It was kind of like, yeah, here's an ass.
0: Like, what sections of it? I just don't, don't quite know how Apparently, you explain- just random. That were fairies. There's fairies. Some stuff happened.
1: <laughs> that's probably why, like, no one really liked it because they thought, "Look at this crazy shit." It doesn't
0: make any fucking sense.
1: <laughs> the thing is, though, even after the Restoration era, when things returned back to normal, *Midsummer Nights* was not played in full. Like I said, for two whole centuries. Meanwhile, the Puritans got on a boat and founded a little country known as America.
0: And England went. Oh,
1: Jesus! Glad that's over. This is
0: not not our problem anymore.
1: So there's that, I guess. The (laughs) (laughs) And that's the backstory of what you need to know about A Midsummer Night's Dream.
0: So, there's a pretty sizable cast of characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm going to break things down a little bit before we get started and um, go over them. Although Shakespeare at least has them handily separated by social strata and, uh, you know, magical fairy creatures. So first there's Theseus and Hippolyta. Uh, Because the play takes place in Athens in ancient Greek times, because we know that Shakespeare was always horny for the Greeks. Theseus is the Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta is the Queen of the Amazons. Theseus has conquered the Amazons and is going to marry Hippolyta, because nothing says romance like calling dibs on the woman whose people you subjugated.
1: Yeah. Hot. Hot. You gotta show them, you got the big dick energy.
0: Theseus has, like, medium dick energy at best.
1: You got the hottie. Then we got
0: hip hip Hip-hop. hop Uh, -hop adopt
1: and you don't stop.
0: Then we got the lovers, Hermia and Helena, who are best friends, and Demetrius and Lysander. Hermia and Hernia? Hermia and Helena.
1: Mm, Hernias are bad.
0: Yeah, so that's a good thing her name is Hermia, with an M. Pretty close. And Demetrius and Lysander, the two dudes who want to bone down on them. Also, Hermia's gross dad, Aegeus, is there, but fuck him. Then we've got the mechanicals which is the name of a group of rough working class dudes who are going to try their hand at being actors because that's totally going to go great for them. And they're called Snug, who doesn't get a first name, along with Tom Snout, Francis Flute, Robin Starveling, Peter Quince, and Nick Bottom. They're all pretty much referred to mostly by their last names only anyway. And finally, there are the fairies, led by King Oberon and Queen t-titan- Titania. Titania. Tit-ti-tan. Yeah, Titty. titty. Titanic. Britannica. And- The Encyclopedia Britannica, and Oberon's henchman, Puck. Also known as Robin Goodfellow, because, you know, this shit wasn't confusing enough. So many people running around. I think it's something, like, I think because, like, Puck was also just sort of, like, the generic name for a fairy. Like, I'm a a Puck. Like, a a sprite that does annoying shit, and, like, Robin Goodfellow is is, his proper name. But depending on which quarto or which version, whatever the fuck you're reading, it's kind of interchangeable. Yeah, Puck, as a character, was actually like a figure of common Elizabethan folklore, as a a fairy house spirit that played practical jokes and was just like a big pain in the ass. And that's the gang. One of the ways that Shakespeare keeps them separate from each other is how they talk. The mechanicals, aka the dirty commoners, speak in regular old prose, while the nobility, which is all of the other human characters, they speak in iambic pentameter, the rhythm of sexy Elizabethan poetry, which... I think we might have said before it's it's unstressed syllable followed by stressed syllable um so like we have this from quote from lysander where it's like you do impeach your modesty too much to leave the city and commit yourself into the hands of one that loves you not it's just that da-da, 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 da-da. why are you shaking your head it's stupid i don't know it's
1: iambic pentameter it's all stupid i guess <laughs> all right, where's more hemingway do more hemingway <laughs>
0: When the lovers get, super... he makes language beautiful. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy, it's iambic damn it.
0: Well, when the lovers get super passionate and horny, they'll often slip into rhyming verse. That's mm. that's how you know that they're like really feeling it. And the fairies, presumably because they're always horny, always speak in rhyme, although in a different rhyme scheme called catalectic trochaic tetrameter. And no, I don't know what that means either. And I looked it up, and it's still very confusing, and I would do a shit job explaining it. So I'm just gonna say, they rhyme different. And one day we're gonna have someone on the show who understands poetry, and and what a glorious day it will be. Hey everybody, it's Megan. As far as you know and i have a really big announcement to make i'm wearing a big comfy bat onesie that's that's not the announcement that's just a fun update of how i'm living my life in the best way possible is is uh, the answer to that it's got little wings on it and ears and pockets you know just be jealous but the actual announcement which you know is not is not quite as cool or interesting um is that we are going to be at PodCon in seattle in january it's gonna be our first real convention our first real convention our first convention period ever and when i say we i mean me not rj just make it might bring A a stick with, like, a cutout of RJ's face on it or or something. Uh, But I will be there in a semi-official capacity, I suppose. I'm going to be at a booth in the exhibitory thing. I'm gonna have more details on this in the next episode, I promise. But uh, I'll be there with Derek from the Sometimes Geek Podcast and Charles from Something Random and Talk and Roll and NoCo his media empire thing and the three of us will be representing the show that we do together rolling misadventures the fiasco tabletop real play audio drama multi-headed hydra that uh, we all create in our spare time on top of everything else because we're insane people uh but i'm also gonna be promoting a whole bunch of Ona a lit class stuff too i'm gonna have stickers and do like a poster giveaway and stuff and it's really awesome and i'm so excited and traveling from Florida to Seattle's gonna fucking suck. But yeah! podcon get ready get excited you you'll be able to come up to to me at a booth and i'm gonna give you a sticker that says don't kink shame dracula and we'll high five and it'll be great and uh you know, maybe i'll just bring an entire cardboard cutout of rj for people to pose and take pictures with it'll be awesome but yeah you should come out and support Ono a lit class and rolling misadventures and sometimes geek and the 30 things that charles does that i can't remember sorry charles you're probably not listening to this. It's fine. He's not listening. It's okay. Just, just between you and me. I'm not actually sorry for about Charles. Uh, so the b- big thing that m- is making a big trip like this for me possible is the generous and wonderful support from our patrons on Patreon. Gosh, I do love them dearly. Right now there are 45 of them I think or 46. It's it's kind of weird. The site's being a little hinky. Um but either way, it's creeping, it's getting there. 50 is on the horizon. It's within reach. And there's there's going to be a lot of new and exciting things going on there in the near future, but for the moment, I just really want to thank him because without their support. If you pledged to our Patreon without your support, I wouldn't be able to do this. So that's really cool and awesome. And so I'm just going to read them out alphabetical this time because there's so fucking many of them and I'm very tired. And this bat onesie is very cozy. So thank you to Aaron, Alexander, Amy B, Amy W, Anne, Aries, Ariel at Ariel Teague, Barry, Ben at KNSJM, Brandon, Brett. Caitlin at Rose Phantom. Cheryl. You know, actually her, her username this whole time has, has been certainly Cheryl. And I always read it as Cheryl. And she's never said anything to me, but you know, it just occurs to me that I read everybody else's the way that it's sent to me. And I don't know why I always shortened it to, to Cheryl, but you know what? She's certainly Cheryl. God damn it. Let there be no mistake about it. Chris at Play Comics. Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy. ES Florian Harriet, Janet, Jared, Jen, Jenna. Ah, yeah, that's right. It's getting that that granular. Uh Camilla, Karen, and the Kates. Kate, Caitlin, and KT. Distinctive Kates. Uh Kendall. Kiki. Lanekin's forty, who I'm pretty sure is just Chris Lane, but this is what he sent me. So it's what I'm working with. Uh Lonnie at Longin, Lucas, Mad's M. Mads R, Matthew, your boy, Chips Ahoy, Morgan, Natalie, Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod, Pseudo Bread, Sam, Sam Ariel, Sarah C, Sarah R, Tanner, and Wendy. Fuck. You guys fucking rock. So if you're gonna be in the area for PodCon, do, do that. Do that sexy thing that sexy thing is come say hi to me and get a sticker. I will have more details in the next episode. Pew pew. Pew pew pew. Jesus Christ I need to sleep more. Okay now that that is out of the way let's get into the play as it is dreamed. So act one opens with Theseus and Hippolyta together and Theseus whining how it sucks that their wedding is four whole days away because he wants to get his bone on now. Gosh darn it.
1: The do it guy.
0: I I know, like it's weird. Like You're in charge. You can make the wedding whenever you want. But whatever. Uh, Hippolyta tells Theseus that those four days are going to fly by in no time, and she even makes a sex joke, so she's pretty chill about the whole forced marriage with your enemy thing.
1: She wants the D. Apparently. She saw it.
0: Theseus says that he's mad at the moon for not moving faster, so the days go by, and Hippolyta's like, yeah, but when that moon finally shines down on us, it's going to see us fucking... Theus is like, hell yeah, Will. And he asks his master of the revels to find some entertainers and get a party started to get everybody in Athens in a sexy mood. So yeah, he just wants like four straight days of of parties. Which, actually, don't know if this lines up with the timeline of the play. Which is another thing, people get weird about the timeline of the play and like, well where was the moon in relation to, because they talk about the moon like constantly and whether or not the moon is shining. And every every all the scholarly people get really fucking hung up on that. Was the ice slippery? <laughs> the sun is shining. Oh, not the moon. I know. We're
1: talking about oh, Megan. It's the same light. Moonlight is just sunlight at night. Great. Moonlight is
0: just sunlight at night.
1: Yeah. <laughs> RJ, twenty eighteen.
0: And speaking of sexy moods, an old man named Aegeus shows up to completely kill the mood all up in a lather and wanting Theseus to solve this problem he has of his daughter w- not wanting to fuck the guy she's supposed to.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what the fuck was
1: that? He shows up and kills the because he ripped the fat one.
0: Yeah, he's just like, hey, Theseus. And Theseus is like... Yeah, Th- Th- Theseus says, uh, Gee-us, what's the news with V? And maybe it's like, oh, the news is you ate something real bad. You got the farts. Those aren't even good farts. You sound like a sick horse. <laughs> welcome to ono lit class where we just make mouth farts at you (laughs) classic literature baby uh yeah so it's another one of these where another another one of these things that seems to happen in shakespeare so much where the dad is upset because the girl doesn't want to fuck the right boy wants to fuck a different boy um fuck them both nah at the same time (laughs) never that fun Aegeus has brought his daughter Hermia, along with Lysander and Demetrius, yelling that Lysander has basically cast some kind of evil spell on Hermia with his penis, because Hermia is refusing to marry Demetrius, the guy that Aegeus picked out for her. Lysander has also been romancing the fuck out of Hermia, and this is just no good at all. And we, the audience, are informed at this point that under Athenian law, if a daughter doesn't do what her dad says, she could be put to death. So Aegeus basically dragged his daughter to Theseus to be like, hey, tell Hermia she has to marry Demetrius or you'll kill her because I guess he's just really bad at parenting. <laughs> and Theseus is, uh, he's not really feeling this. Like, it's a serious boner killer, having to think about killing this girl. And he says, you know, just marry the guy. Like, he seems cool. And Hermia refuses, and he tells her that her non-Demetrius-related options are death or becoming a nun. And according to Theseus, being a nun is basically as bad as being dead because of the whole valid chastity thing. And Hermia says she'd rather be a virgin forever than marry Demetrius. And Theseus is like, ew, gross and decrees she has until the royal wedding day to make up her mind on whether she's going to be married, dead, or married to God and dead from the waist down. Heyo, up top.
1: No, oh, down low. Up top. Down low.
0: Down, down low. <laughs> and then Lysander gets a good joke in about how Demetrius already has the love of Hermia's father and that he should just marry uh, Aegeus and let Lysander and Hermia be together. This suggestion does not go over well. So Lysander changes strategy and points out that Demetrius was previously flirting with Hermia's friend, Helena, who still has a thing for Demetrius, so like Demetrius is just being a dickhead. And Theseus is like, yeah, let's, let's maybe talk about that. And he pulls Demetrius and Aegeus away for what he calls private schooling. He's like, let me give you this private schooling on the matter. Let me take these fools to school. And this leaves Lysander and Hermia alone, which seems unwise, and is, because they immediately hatch a plan to run away from Athens to Lysander's rich aunt's house and get married. Hermia agrees to meet Lysander in the woods the following night and everything's going to be great. And this is where we get the moon thing because he's like, "Ah, the moon is really wait, I don't remember if it's the moon is really bright and will light our way or there won't be a moon so people won't see us running away?" Some kind of mixed up in my head. No,
1: the sun doesn't do shit. It's all the moon. So where is the sun? Are we sure this happens on multiple nights? Yes,
0: cuz he says tomorrow night. The, the, the main events of the weird shit that goes on are confined to one night. Uh. Then Helena shows up, and she's all moony and sad over Demetrius. Ah, moony. I didn't even think of it. <laughs> Apparently she just follows him around, like, wailing for him to love her, which, shockingly, hasn't been working out so great. And because he's more interested in Hermia, that means it's Hermia's fault. Obviously. That's how friends do. And Hermia is, is like, look, I've, I've done everything short of, like, taking a hot poker to his taint... And he's still into me, so I don't know what to tell you, except don't even worry about it, because I'm not even going to be here anymore. I'm running away with Lysander, and you'll have him all to yourself. Now Helena takes this information that has been entrusted to her by her good friend Hermia, and decides to use it to snitch on her to Demetrius. Reasoning that, like, hey, he's super not into me now, but maybe if I tell him that his love is trying to run away forever, he'll be so grateful that he'll love me again, and won't go capture Hermia. Because he'll be too busy boning me. Because he'll be so happy. That I told him about Hermia running away. The plan makes no fucking sense. Also, Helen is a shitty friend who can't be trusted. So it's no wonder that a catch like her hasn't managed to land a boy. What's what's the gender-flipped equivalent of bros before hoes? Chicks before dicks. I guess. Finally. Yeah, well, they should... That. She uh, she, uh...
1: Bitches before snitches.
0: Yeah, bi- bitches get... St- snitches get stitches, which is what's kind of gonna... You know what? We're, I'm bad at this. <laughs> And anyway, cucks el-
1: before cots. cucks.
0: Cucks before what no <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, elsewhere in Athens, the mechanicles all meet up the mechanicles, Jesus. Mechanicles. The mechanicals all the, meet up to The Monocles? The the mechanic the McGonicles the monocles, all meet up to practice a play they're going to perform for Theseus and Apollo's wedding. Snug, Snout, Flute, Starveling, Bottom, and Quince are all craftsmen. They're tailors, weavers, carpenters, that kind of thing, and this is their first go at acting. Quince is in charge and has chosen the most lamentable comedy and most cruel death of Pyramus and Thisbe as the play that they're going to perform. And even Bottom's like, oh yeah, that's a Awesome choice for a wedding, C- cruel death, and they all go along with it anyway, because they're all pretty dumb. Also, Pyramus and Thisbe is a real story. It's not something that was invented for this play. It's from Book Four of Ovid's Metamorphosis. The story of Pyramus and Thisbe is the story of two young lovers who cannot be together, try to elope, and die horribly. In other words, like with Amleth, it's the story that Shakespeare stole from to write Romeo and Juliet, around the same time as he was writing this play, apparently. <laughs> Uh, so Quince casts Bottom in the role of Pyramus for the sole reason that Bottom is the most good-looking out of all of them, and it immediately goes to his head. Now, I was not a theater kid in school, partly because I was shy, but mostly because I had absolutely no talent. But I hung out with a lot of theater kids, and Bottom is like an amalgamation of the worst theater kid traits. He's convinced that, like, he's fucking brilliant, and he could play everybody else's parts, and he attempts to prove that he could play everybody else's parts, and he recites a bunch of shitty poetry, and he tries to tell the director, in this case Quince, how the play should really be done, and he's just really obnoxious and terrible.
1: Did all the kids wear an ass on their head?
0: No, not literally, in this case. I guess. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Flute, one of the younger guys there, gets stuck playing Fisbee, very much against his will, which, you know, when you've got to pretend you're in love with Bottom, like, yeah, I get that, but hey, don't even worry. Bottom to the rescue. Just let him play both parts. Let him be Pyramus and Thisbe. And then he yells back and forth in like a squeaky, high pitched voice and then a deep voice to prove that he can do it. That he was just like, my love, my love, my love, my love. And it's like, oh, oh God, please stop. And Quince very patiently tells him no and gives Snug the role of lion. Because apparently there's a lion in Pyramus and Thisbe, which begs the question of like, why the fuck is there not a lion in Romeo and Juliet? What the fuck, Shakespeare? You had the chance to do a cool thing. And you, you, you took it out. It's like Amleth and Hamlet. All the cool shit in Amleth didn't make it into Hamlet. There's apparently a lion in Pyramus and Thisbe, not in Romeo and Juliet.
1: Yeah, they put it in Baz Luhrmann's variation of the movie.
0: Wait, when was there a lion in that one? I don't remember that.
1: Well, when he eats Leo.
0: That doesn't happen. Yeah, it
1: does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, then he has to wander through the wilderness because they thought he was dead. Okay. And he winds up like going into like, a closet of some sort. There's a wardrobe and witches
0: you went in so many different directions. That's the It's
1: crazy. You f- are all right. Um, then turns into the Gatsby. Gats. Gats. Jake Gats. <laughs> It's me, guys, Jigettes. I love green lights. I love green lights so much. <laughs> I just stand on the edge of my pier sometimes, sticking my hand out, and I feel like it's getting closer.
0: I or love, maybe it's going away. I love that green light. <laughs> I, I know, swat at
1: it, and I, I'm a cat.
0: I don't know what voice this is.
1: Jigettes!
0: <laughs> so Snug's going to be the lion, and he, he's worried about memorizing his lines, and Quince is like... The lion doesn't have lions, dude. He's a lion. He just fucking roars. Like, you can do this. I believe in you. But of course, here comes Nick fucking Bottoms screaming about how he can play the lion instead. And he'll roar so loud and so good that everyone in the audience will crap their pants. And Quince is like, yeah, no, that's that's bad. Because then the Duke will probably have us all killed. For scaring everyone. And Bottom's like, then I will roar very gently and sexily. And Quince is just already so done with this. And they they haven't even started rehearsing yet.
1: (laughs) Meow.
0: (laughs) Just like that.
1: This also reminds me of that uh, baptism. Yeah. They had like plays going on all day.
0: (laughs) Were any of them Shakespeare plays?
1: No. Oh, denied. They they were plays made just for the baptism.
0: Were they plays about... The baptism? I don't think about
1: the baptism, but they were, like, plays just for the king for that day. I
0: see. Pretty
1: hardcore. Probably, like, making babies.
0: (laughs) Play's all about fucking. So, anyway, Quince tells them all to memorize their lines and meet him in the forest the next night to rehearse, where there will be no one around to see how utterly embarrassing and terrible they are. And that's the end of Act 1. Act 2 opens in the forest, which is magic as fuck. As Puck appears and chats with another fairy who works for Titania and they talk about how the queen and king are currently fighting with each other over a changeling boy that Titania adopted after his mother died, and Oberon wants for himself to make a cute little servant boy. And in the middle of this weird, magical custody battle, they've also come to the forest for the occasion of Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. Halfway through this discussion, the other fairy recognizes Puck and is like, oh, you're Robin Goodfellow, that fairy who's a huge asshole to humans for funsies, and he's like, yep, that's me, and details a long list of dickhead things he's done to people. And then suddenly... Oberon and Titania appear, and it's very tense and awkward as Titania loudly states to everyone that they aren't sleeping together right now because they're fighting. Like, she turns to one fairy and is like, Oh, tell Oberon this because, you know, we're not sleeping together. We're not sharing a bed, so he doesn't. I'm not he's not going to be able to tell him myself. We're not fucking because I'm mad at him. And then they both accuse each other of having fucked or otherwise wanting to fuck either Theseus or Hippolyta, and each of them is like, You're just a terrible, jealous drama slut, and I hate you. But then Oberon is is just like, hey, give me that, give me that changeling boy. And then we can just forget this whole thing ever happened. And Titania says no, and also fuck you, and then leaves. Oberon grabs Puck and is like, hey, I've got a really good idea. There's a magic flower that was made when Cupid tried to shoot an arrow at a virgin queen, who just as an aside is a reference to Queen Elizabeth, the virgin queen, but he missed and hit the flower. And now when you squeeze the juice of the flower on the eyes of a sleeping person, they fall in love with the first thing they see when they wake up. And that sounds really convoluted, but actually it gets even worse, because you're gonna get the flower, squirt it all up on Titania, make her fall in love with something gross, and while she's busy trying to, like, fuck a badger or a rock that looks like Willem Dafoe or whatever, I will steal the changeling boy. And there's got to be an easier way to do this, but Puck is always down for weird sex-based hijinks and goes off to find the flower. And as he does, Oberon hears the sound of people approaching and turns himself invisible. And that's a a fun one since, you know, they're on stage. Oberon has to say to, like, no one in particular, because at this point, Puck is already gone, like, Hey, I hear people, but it's okay. I can stay and listen to them, because I am invisible. Of course. (laughs) Just, Just to the audience, you know. Anyway. The people are Demetrius and Helena, and shocker, Helena's plan didn't go like she thought it would, and Demetrius is wandering around the woods looking for Lysander so he can murder him, with Helena tagging along and Demetrius yelling at her to go away, because she's annoying. And Helena's yelling like, I am your dog, and I'm going to follow you like a dog, and nothing's hotter than that, am I right? Nothing's sexier than a woman being like, oh, I'm I'm just like your dirty dog. Very true. Very hot. And Demetrius is like, I'm gonna run really fast now, and and hopefully you'll get eaten by a bear or something. And he takes off. And Helena has a brief monologue about how her continuing to chase Demetrius, while exhausting and sad, is challenging gender norms, because she's the one trying to do the courting instead of being courted. But honestly, I don't think hurling yourself at a dude over and over while screaming that you'll be his dog is doing much for feminism, so yeah. She follows after him, and Oberon is like, wow, that guy seems like a real tool bag. And when Puck comes back with the flower, he tells him to drip some of that sweet, sweet love juice on Demetrius, so that he'll love Helena back. Except his instructions are maybe less than great, because Puck's like, who? Whomst? And Oberon's like, oh, you'll, you'll know him when you see him. He's a human. He's dressed like an Athenian. You know? Like all the Athenians are. Because they're in fucking Athens. <laughs>
1: When in Rome, you know? (laughs)
0: When in Rome, everyone's dressed like a goddamn Roman, so look for the guy dressed as a Roman might not be the best advice. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be fine, though. Oberon then takes the flower and sneaks off to find Titania sleeping in a magic fairy forest bed or something and dribbles some horny flower juice in her eyes and then leaves. As soon as he does, Lysander and Hermia appear and are totally lost and extremely not horny and decide to just sleep there for the night. And Hermia makes Lysander sleep away from her. Because there's still no hanky panky allowed until he officially marries her. Those are the rules. Everybody knows the rules. <laughs> everybody knows the rules. No fucking <laughs> no before fucking. the rings on that finger. Everybody or, knows the rules. Everybody knows the rules. Where are we?
1: Um, Athens.
0: That's the whole point. They don't know where they are. <laughs> they're, they're lost in that forest. They're lost in the, the corner sauce. of
1: sixth and something.
0: <laughs> the corner of forest and tree. So they go to sleep, and Puck wanders in, and oh hey, there's a dude in Athenian clothes sleeping far away from this girl. Probably because he doesn't like her, right? Right. And Puck spurts out some sexy flower goo onto Lysander. Yes, that's the noise it makes. <laughs> what the fuck is that?
1: so a gatling gonna come. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think that's what a ga- I don't. Also, it's a, he's, he's doing a flower. He's not jacking off. <laughs> also, if that's what it sounds like when you jack off, you should probably go see a doctor. Then Helena appears, also lost, and pretty upset that Demetrius ditched her and still hasn't thrown himself at her feet, declaring his love for her. But you know who she does find at her feet? Who? Lysander, because he's asleep. Uh, And she freaks out and thinks that he's dead for some reason, and shakes him awake, and as he opens his eyes and sees her, Lysander declares his undying love for Helena. And she assumes he's just fucking with her and runs away crying, and Lysander runs after her. Hermia wakes up and sees Lysander gone, and then she freaks out and runs off to try and find him. Just a bunch of horny teens lost in the woods. All that's missing is like a Shakespearean Jason Voorhees to come murder them all.
1: <coughs> nope,
0: that's the psycho sound. The, the Jason Voorhees is the... <coughs> nope, not, not... <coughs> oh, <laughs> You're doing Ferris Bueller. Benita. That is Predator. <laughs> that's still Predator. I mean, I guess the Predator could also be in the woods, but the Horny Teens thing is kind of a, a slasher movie
1: thing. <laughs> that's Halloween, that's Mike
0: Myers. You're very bad at this. <laughs> Instead, we move into Act Three, with the Mechanicals practicing their play, not realizing they're right by where Titania's sleeping. Again, Bottom has one of his brief moments of clarity like, man, this play is really sad and violent. Like, I have to stab myself and everything. Why are we doing this at a wedding? And, um, the guys are all, like, not only egregiously stupid, but also so assured of their, like, incredible talent as actors that they're genuinely worried about stuff like the double suicide and the lion attacks being so, like, believable and scary and upsetting that the audience won't be able to handle it. That they're, they're just that good at, at acting. So they write a prologue reminding everyone that they're all actors and no one dies for realsies and that the lion is also not a lion, but also an actor. So there's no real lion in case you were you know
1: leon
0: (laughs) she sure said lion in a funny way if
1: i only had a heart
0: the tin man was the one who wanted a heart
1: if i only had a brain
0: that is the the straw straw man straw man wait no fuck (laughs) scarecrow
1: (laughs) if i only had a pair of red ruby shoes it's
0: literally everyone but the lion at this point
1: (laughs) I only had a pink rocket.
0: All right, we're just going to move on.
1: Um, Ew.
0: With that problem solved, Quince realizes that they need someone to play the moon that Pyramus and Thisbe meet under because they have this whole thing of like, oh, is the moon going to be like shining when we do the play? Oh, we'll we'll just have a dude play the moon and hold a lantern and say, I'm the moon. Um, And then also someone has to play the wall that has a hole in it that they talk through. So someone has to be like, I'm the wall. Pyramus and Thisbe will talk through me and wear a wall costume. It's pretty fucking great.
1: Was a glory hole happen?
0: There is a glory hole, but they only talk through it.
1: Oh, you could talk with things other than words. <laughs>
0: this is very true, but that does not happen. <laughs> and yes, of course, Bottom volunteers to be both of those things. He wants to play the moon, he wants to play the wall, all that stuff. The puck happens upon this whole scene is like, man, that guy's a real ass. And then a cartoon light bulb goes off over his head and he literally turns Bottom's head into a donkey's. Um, The other actors freak out and run away, and Bottom, you know, doesn't know what's going on, and we get his famous line as he's confused, he thinks his friends are making fun of him, he says, "This This is to make an ass of me! Because Shakespeare was many things, but Subtle wasn't one of them. Bottom, like most theater kids when left to their own devices, starts singing, and wakes up Titania, who sees him and is like, Oh shit, I need to fuck that! And how does Bottom react to the literal queen of the fairies professing her love for him?
1: I could play that. Yeah,
0: let me play the fairy queen. Um, He kind of shrugs and goes like, yeah, all right, okay. He has like these 10 seconds where he admits that it's kind of weird, but hey, you know, love's kind of weird. And then he tries to leave and Titania's like, (laughs) no, now come fuck this. Forever. And she has him trapped there. Puck reports this back to Oberon, who thinks it's hilarious that his wife has been tricked into being desperately in love with some jackass eh, against her will. He asks if Puck fixed Demetrius as well, and Puck's like, Hell yeah, nailed it. And then Demetrius and Hermia appear. Hermia having found him and yelling that she thinks he's killed Lysander, which Demetrius denies. And as Hermia runs off, he's just like, This has been a very long night, and I can't deal with this anymore. And he goes to sleep. And Oberon's like, You didn't nail it. You opposite of nailed it. Go get Helena and bring her here. And Puck's like, Who?! But Oberon's already squeezing his magic horny juice over Demetrius. Helena appears, Lysander chasing after her, and wakes up Demetrius, and now both dudes want a piece of Helena. And she thinks they're both just messing with her still. And then Hermia doubles back, I guess, and is just like, what the hell is going on? And what the Helena's going on? Ah. And Helena is just like, this is your fault. Hermia, it was your fault when they both loved you and it's your fault now that they both love me. And then Hermia tries to talk sense into Lysander, who calls her a bunch of racial slurs to prove he doesn't love her anymore. Because that'll do it. Hermia decides that this is all actually Helena's fault, and they have a bitch fight. And Hermia threatens to scratch her eyes out, and Helena yells for the boys to step in to protect her, saying that line of, um, And though she be, but little she is fierce. Which is where that quote comes from. We talk a lot about it, in our patreon exclusive minisode on famous interpreted and out of context literary quotes but i just have to mention it here too because it's 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 not like in context an empowering moment of like i'm small but i'm strong it's this really irritating person being like protect me boys she's short but she's scrappy like a little yappy dog or something she'll try to bite you just saying ankle biter yeah basically so this whole thing is a fucking mess, and they're all chasing each other, and Oberon is just like, how did you fuck this up so bad? And Puck points out that look for a guy dressed as an Athenian is extremely vague, and also that this is way better anyway, because maybe they'll all kill each other. And Puck thinks murder is hilarious. But Oberon decides to suddenly be the fun police, and makes Puck lure the lovers around in a circle to tire them all out so he can fix it. And he does, leaving Demetrius bewitched, and giving Lysander the antidote, and ending Act 3. Act 4 opens with Oberon checking on Titania and finding her snuggled up to bottom, both of them asleep. Puck shows up and is just like, damn, this is pretty weird, even for us. And Oberon tells him that he has the changeling boy now and to undo the spell, which he does. Titania wakes up and is like, wow, I had this crazy dream that I wanted to fuck a donkey dude and oh no! Yeehaw! And Oberon has Puck fixed Bottom's head, and he and Titania walk off together, and there's absolutely zero consequences to all of this bullshit. I, I guess she just never notices that, hey, didn't I used to have, like, this changeling kid? Did it- Nope, no, alright, guess not. Morning comes, and Theseus and Hippolyta are hunting in the woods with hounds, which seems way more like an Elizabethan thing than an ancient Greek thing, but whatever. The hounds find the four lovers all sleeping on top of each other. Theseus wakes them up like, uh, kids, not to kink shame, but... Why are y'all sleeping together in the woods? And they're like, uh, I don't know. But we all want to fuck the correct people now, so we're good. And Thesis is like, cool. And he tells the Jesus to shut up and that his daughter doesn't have to marry Demetrius anymore. Because Demetrius don't wanna. Then Bottom wakes up in his part of the woods and is like, what the fuck even happened last night? Which is meant not just to be about his own experiences, but also that that whole chunk of the play, essentially. Bottom's like the audience surrogate, and he goes on this whole thing of like, that was crazy. It was like a dream. The whole world was upside down and tangled and crazy. Just wild. And it's important because he's the only human that actually interacts with the fairies. And also his his job, he's the weaver. He's Bottom the weaver. Because he weaves these two worlds together. Ooh. Eventually, he's just like, I guess it was all a dream. And then he winks at the audience, probably. Ching! De- that's a wink sound. He finds the mechanicals, who are all sad because they thought Bottom was dead. Not, like, because they really liked him all that much, but because they thought they wouldn't be able to perform the play, which would have made them even more money because now there are two other couples getting married with Theseus and Hippolyta. But then Bottom comes back, and so the play is back on. And the uh, act five, the final act of the play, is basically just the mechanical struggling to get through Pyramus and Thisbe while the three married couples just heckle them. Although they do kind of deserve it. Like, they fuck up all their lines, and it's legitimately funny on its own. Like, I'm not really going to be able to add anything trying to, like, explain it and make jokes about it. You have a guy standing there saying, I'm the wall. You have their prologue where they're like, don't worry. This guy who's a lion, he's not really a lion. It's going to be fine. Bottom fucks up the the lines. I think at one point he tries to say that the maiden has been devoured, but he says deflowered. It's just a mess. It's it's a really bad, funny Romeo and Juliet and is, is good. Uh, it's also Shakespeare kind of ragging on people, I guess, that aren't professional actors trying to act. Like, it makes... The actual actors of the play look that much better by comparison, because they're like, look at these shitty actors. Not like us good actors, am I right? And it's definitely done with love, because Theseus still compliments them on their efforts. Although when Bottom asks if they want to hear an epilogue, Theseus is like, yeah, no, we're good. Like, everyone's dead. I think we got it. And then everyone dances, which, if I recall correctly, that was the only thing the critic you uh, read that he liked, the dances.
1: The dancing and the handsome... Ladies.
0: Okay. And then it's time for bed. As Theseus says, it's almost, quote, fairy time. And as the humans leave the stage, the fairies take their cue and appear, and they bless the house, and then they leave uh, just Puck on stage to address the audience. And he has his little ending monologue that was one of those things that I had to memorize in school that says, If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme... No more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. So, give me your hands if we be friends doesn't mean like, like, take my hand, it means like, please clap. And if you didn't like the play, pretend it was a bad dream, and clap anyway. Don't be an asshole. The end, and that's that's a Midsummer Night's Dream.
1: Exciting. I Riveting. mean, it,
0: it's it's fun. It's you know, it's it's just goofy fun. Um,
1: Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, Shakespeare. So, what was the question you'd asked me before that I was supposed to have an answer about?
1: Oh, how you interpret the title? Is it a dream about a Midsummer Night, like longing, wishing for summer, or? <laughs> Is it happening in the summer and it was all a dream?
0: Um, I mean, it was all I mean everybody thinks that it was all a dream. And it was in May, so I don't know if that counts as midsummer or not, because he's like, oh, these uh, kids were following the rites of May. But as we stated before, I don't know. that. Yeah, the weather was all screwy during this time. Titania does make mention of that, that I forgot to say, that she's like, because me and Oberon are fighting and not having sex with each other, there's weird fog and floods and the weather isn't behaving as it should, because apparently that was happening at the time. I-, I-, I think it's more supposed to be a dream that took place during midsummer. As opposed to be dreaming of the midsummer, because there's nothing particularly s- summery about it. What's uh? What's no your no days? No, not really. What's your take, RJ?
1: A dream about midsummer.
0: How do you figure? Because are you just being? Are you just picking the opposite of what I picked? No. Well, then tell me your reasoning.
1: That's what other people online said.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> the other people online said it. <laughs> That's did, what they, made did me think of the question? Did they say why?
1: It's a controversy. I mean, there's some uh, there's some summerers and some dream of summerers.
0: <laughs> you uh, took that argument without looking at all why it might be that.
1: I figured I would listen to your summary and be opinionated, but turns out I'm not.
0: My summary, summary.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, there's not too much to talk about in terms of adaptations. Just... So
1: I know Megan's going to cover adaptations.
0: Yes, that thing I just said.
1: Well. There is a cultural touchstone that, while not an adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream, is supposedly at least inspired by it. Supposedly. I swear to God, if
0: you say an earnest movie or something, I'm (laughs)
1: going to fucking... So, here's the thing. In 1988, the ultimate Christmas movie, directed by John McTiernan, was released. That Christmas movie, of course, is John McClane's Yippee-Yo, Yippee-Yay Mother Plucker, a.k.a. Die Hard.
0: What? Wait, wait, what?
1: McTiernan, in all honesty and unironically, claims that Midsummer's single night time frame inspired him to make a movie utilizing the same framing device. And boom, there you go die hard. This seems to ignore the fact that Midsummer takes place over multiple nights. What the fuck? During summertime and not Christmas time in New York City. What? 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 <laughs> yeah, it's uh, John McTiernan for it.
0: What inspired you to do uh, make Die Hard? Midsummer Night's Dream. And Actually, Die Hard was based on a book, wasn't it? I don't know. I, th- I don't. I think Die Hard is original. Yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> so wait, wait, so wait. Is John McClane Puck? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck to do with this information, but I'm glad that everyone listening now also has to deal with it.
1: You want me to try to find like a quote from him? Yes, please. In the original script, Gruber's Siege took place over three days, but McTiernan, who was inspired to change it, so that all the action unfolded over the course of a single night after reading Shakespeare's classic A Midsummer Night's Dream, therein ensuring the story conformed to Aristotle's classic principles of dramatic unity as outlined in his work Poetics. What the fuck?
0: And it's not even... I mean, the main action, yes, takes place over the course of a single night, I guess. But yeah, no, there's like... Four days in the play, as Theseus points out at the beginning, saying, Man, I can't wait till it's four days from now, and we'll be married, and we can fuck.
1: Apparently, if you listen to the commentary track of the movie, he waxes poetic about this whole thing.
0: Holy shit. I really just, I really like the idea that it's like, you read Midsummer Night's Dream, and you take away from this. like, hmm, you know, I'm gonna change up my Die Hard movie so that it's more like a Midsummer Night's Dream. How are you gonna do that? Well, I'm gonna make it in one night. That's fucking wild. Um, okay. That was absolutely not what I expected. I wasn't sure what I expected, to be fair, but it wasn't that.
1: <laughs> and another tidbit I'll just throw out there. Fans of celestial bodies might also be interested to know about Uranus.
0: Because it has... Um...
1: And who doesn't want to talk about Uranus? Three of the moons Ooh, of indeed. the planet Uranus are named after characters from the play.
0: Uh, Oberon.
1: Oh, oh, orbiting Uranus or the moons that have been named Oberon.
0: Yeah, I think Titania. Titania? I don't know, the third one.
1: Take a guess. Puck? Nailed it. Puck being the most recent addition to Uranus.
0: (laughs) Gotta keep things fresh around Uranus, you know?
1: If it looks like a puck, though, you might want to get that checked out. Yeah. Mole shouldn't be growing there. (laughs) So Megan, other adaptations, other than Die Hard.
0: Well, nothing's gonna chalk up to that, so, I mean- it's fucking Shakespeare. If you can dream it, it exists. It was adapted into everything. Every fucking medium. There have been entire, you know, operas and, and Mendelssohn did the whole thing and, yeah, no, just just every conceivable version and they've, they've done, you know, it, as with all the Shakespeare adaptations, it's like, what if we did this but we made it weird? What if we did like a modern update? There was one just last year, in, in 2017. It was apparently released in theaters. I never saw anything for it. But it was just called A Midsummer Night's Dream, but it took place in modern-day Los Angeles. Famous Dr. Who's men, uh Russell Davies, did a miniseries, I think, in 2015. Um, it's, it's been around. I just wanted to mention my personal favorite adaptation, which was a film version in 1999. And it does kind of a weird change where it just decides, no, it's it's like turn of the 19th century Italy now. And everyone's on bicycles. And there's really no reason for that. Except everybody has to ride bikes a bunch. So I don't know if the director had like a fetish or what. But it's a really, really good cast. Uh, Rupert Everett is Oberon. Michelle Pfeiffer is Titania. Uh, Stanley Tucci is Puck, which is if that sounds kind of weird, it's because it is. It's kind of weird. But Rupert Everett and Michelle Pfeiffer are just—they're uh, very sexy. Everything they say is said to each other sexily. And then there's like a lot of about to be famous baby actors in it. There was Christian Bale as Demetrius, coming hot off of Little Women. Dominic West as Lysander. Callista Flockhart as Helena. Little baby Sam Rockwell as uh, Francis Flute, the one who ends up having to play Fisbee, and Kevin Kline as Nick Bottom, who's just the best part of the movie by, like, a fucking mile. He's so good. He's so funny. It's just a really solid adaptation that it it does the script... You know, word for word, um, but it adds a lot of. They they do a lot of dialogue-free scenes that add a lot to some of the characters, including Bottom, which is really cool, and just the way that they decided to stage a lot of it was really neat. It's one of my favorite like Shakespeare adaptations, and I like it's It's got its problems, but I, I like it a lot, and the way it does the mechanicals doing Pyramus and Thisbe is also very funny. So I definitely recommend checking that out. And so, that brings us to a part of the show. Hey, RJ. Sup? A midsummer night's dream. Good? Bad? Die hard?
1: This whole thing confused me. <laughs> From beginning to end. I'm very confused. Like what specific? All of it. No oh. death. Lots of fairies. Donkey heads. I just can't make odds or ends of this. Give me die hard any day.
0: <laughs> God forbid when we do, um... Twelfth Night or Much Ado About Nothing you're gonna be even more confused because that's all Shakespeare comedies is is weird confusing mistaken identity
1: no no but I've seen Twelfth Night performed like three times (laughs) and I've seen Much Ado About (laughs) Nothing the black and white film
0: the what's his face Joss Whedon sure yeah
1: Whedon. Whedon Whedon
0: you've seen the Midsummer Night's Dream movie though too I don't remember this okay
1: Probably confused me. I guess confounded me.
0: <laughs> confused and confounded by Christian Bale and others. I'm looking Kevin forward
1: <laughs> to my next party where I'm gonna have a lion.
0: I advise against that.
1: No, no, I'm gonna have a lion.
0: Gonna have a lion. Yeah, could be sick as hell. So no, that's a no good from you, huh? No. Okay.
1: Step up your game, Big Willie. <laughs> Bum. B-
0: <laughs> Bum. Wow.
1: Hey Megan. Yeah, Jay. I'm been to summer night stream. <laughs> Yippee.
0: yippee. Yippee-ki-yay. Yippee? You, did you seriously <laughs> fucking forget that the line is yippy kai, motherfucker?
1: Yippee, kai, or yay. Well, yay, uh, I would have to say. That's the bottom, though. Uh,
0: yeah, but it's the, yay is, is good.
1: Is it? Um, yippee uh, comes first.
0: I suppose. A Midsummer Night's Dream. To stream, quote
1: Anakin Skywalker. Yippee! but you went with yay
0: well whatever fine it rhymes with nay oh my god a horse sound A Midsummer Night's Dream is just a fun play. Almost all the major characters get to have a good time, everybody's talking in double entendres, there's a drug-induced sexual attraction without consent, that's uncomfortable, Um, and Shakespeare even pokes fun at himself at the end with this Romeo and Juliet parody like nestled within the play. It's definitely one that benefits more from being seen or acted out rather than read, I think, because a lot of what makes the dialogue and stuff like great and funny is how it's delivered which is why when you know everybody has to read it out loud in class in a boring monotone while struggling with the language you probably don't have a very good time with it except for all the bits where you get to say the word ass without getting in trouble that's always fun i'm going to give him an ass head (laughs) with all of these different kinds of characters you know running around and they're all very kind of memorable characters i mean i guess maybe not the lovers because you get them all mixed up, but that's kind of the point. You're supposed to get them all mixed up. You're in the forest. Shit's weird. All kinds of crazy nonsense is happening. It's the liminal space where everything is flipped upside down and a magical queen wants to fuck some schmo with a donkey head. I like it a lot.
1: The end.
0: That'll about do it for us on this uh, episode of Ona Lit class. If you like the show, if you want to fulfill all of our Midsummer Night dreams, dude, you don't have to fuck anyone. You just have to tell people about us. Just tell people. Get on social media and be like, Oh, no, Lit Class, that's a cool show. You should check that out. They talk about Shakespeare and fucking a lot. Or, you know, whatever whatever you would say that would make people like us. And then you could also say that, that they can check us out on Facebook, in our Facebook group, on Twitter, at Pod, on Tumblr, at ownalitclass.tumblr.com. And always and forever, just at onolitclass.com, uh, you can pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com/onolitclass and get access to bonus content, and vote on upcoming episodes, and sweet swag and t-shirts and, and fun things like that. If you haven't sent in a question for us yet for our Q and A, please do that. The next episode will be will be that on December thirteenth. Until then. I'm Megan.
1: I'm RJ. We love you. Bye.
0: Fine, I was just trying to think of someone who did bad films.
1: Corn Eastwood? Pistachios. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They're pistachios.
0: You mean pecans? No. <laughs> also, the only... these are pistachios
1: for my pecan pie, drug pie, <laughs> this, drugs.
0: This has to be cut because it doesn't no one's gonna know what the fuck you're
1: referencing (laughs) although no it's coming out by soon
0: it's coming out by soon (laughs)